0: Hey, how you doing? How you doing over there? I'm Michael Montero over here for Boxing Monthly. You're watching the neutral corner. Boom! For September 30th. Fight Freaks. Uh, I just want to say real quick thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Thank you to all of you who have ordered MOB t shirts. Guys, if you haven't ordered one yet and you'd like to, email us at MonteroOnBoxing.com. We've already sold out of smalls and mediums and all the girls' sizes, so we're going to have to reorder some. Uh, also, a lot of you guys have asked about shipping overseas. We've looked into it, there is additional cost. I think it'll be about ten dollars per shirt additional for international shipping, but we would love to ship to people all over the world. So no matter where you live, give us a shout, email to us, and let us know your size, your address, where you're at, and we'll go from there. But we're selling them twenty-five or two for forty, and then uh, if you're talking international shipping, thirty-five dollars or two for sixty. So that's the deal, man. It's a pretty good deal. I mean, I've seen what a lot of these other guys are charging for shirts. We're, we're not doing it to get rich. Yeah, we're doing it to try to uh, pledge a little money back into the channel for some equipment that we're working on. You guys know all about that. But uh, please, if you want to support us, check out a shirt, man. Check out patreon.com slash Montero All right. A lot to catch up on. News and notes. Some interesting signings that happened in the last week. Daniel Jacobs signs with Matchroom or Eddie Hearn basically as his promoter in a multi fight deal with HBO. And that's important. That's an important distinction multi fight deal with HBO. So he's going to be off Showtime for a while. Uh, I believe it's three fights, but I don't know for sure. Either way, you know, you look at the landscape of the middleweight division, most of the brass. Is on the HBO side not the Showtime side they have the junior middleweights right but uh, Jacobs is still with Al Heyman still his advisor but he never really had an official promoter just like most of Al Heyman's guys and now he has a legitimate promoter a guy who I think is uh, probably the best promoter in the business as far as actually promoting his fighters and there's a market now you look at um, Look, on HBO, you got David Lemieux, right? So you got that kind of possibility right there. Uh, Jacob's fight, his first fight with HBO, I think is going to be a layup. Uh, I'm not sure if the opponent is officially it or not, so I don't want to say, but I think it's going to be pretty much a layup. And that's okay. What he did against Golovkin, he deserves a layup, right? But after that, man, let's see him against David Lemieux. And then. You know, maybe, just maybe, we could see him against somebody like a Billy Joe Saunders. I don't know about that. It's possible. But if one of the titles that Golovkin holds ends up being uh, stripped, you look at, I think it's the IBF with Sergei Derevyanchenko, you know, they're going to force that mandatory at some point. And if Golovkin and Canelo do a rematch in May, which is what I think is going to happen, Maybe that title becomes vacant, and maybe we see Jacobs going up against the Revianchenko for a vacant title or something like that. I like it a lot, man. I, I think Jacobs is a damn good fighter. I think he's probably the third best middleweight right behind Golovkin and Canelo. And any combination of those fighters, any of the other guys I mentioned, I'd love to see it. So I think this is a great signing. Also, uh, Carl Frampton just signed with Frank Warren. It's the same thing here with Frampton. He is still advised by Al Heyman, but now he actually has a big time quote unquote promoter. Of course, Frank Warren isn't quite doing the same business Eddie Hearn is doing right now. He doesn't have the same names, but Frank Warren's been in the game a long, long time. He ain't going anywhere. So uh, good signing. And, you know, as far as possible fights, there's no network exclusivity with Frampton as far as I understand it. I think he'll probably stay on Showtime because that's where the bulk of the fighters in his division are. But, you know, people have asked, does this mean we're going to start seeing a mass exodus of Al Heyman fighters signing with promoters? I don't see that quite happening just yet. But i do think there will be a trickle down effect and we will see more of this you look at carl frampton who was essentially promised that there'd be a rubber match or one of the fights with leo santa cruz would be in his home country never materialized right and he brought all the business over in that, particularly with that first fight with Santa Cruz and even a big portion of the business to Vegas in their rematch. He brought a lot of the fans over from the UK and Al Heyman just hasn't done anything for the guy. And then you look at Jacobs, um, you know, after that career-defining win over Peter Quillen going back a year or so, not much happened for him. Not much was done. After this career-defining I feel performance, a losing performance, but still career best performance against Golovkin in March, nothing has happened. So these guys, I think you might see a few more of them start to look to sign with a promoter that actually will promote them. Heyman uses little shell promoters or sham promoters, there's all these words that people throw out, shadow promoters, that just promote particular events. But these promoters aren't, promoting the fighters full time under a contract. And, and now with Jacobs and Frampton, hopefully it's not too late for them. Hopefully their best years aren't behind them yet. Hopefully there's still a couple years left of prime in their career. And they actually have two uh, big, powerful promoters that can do some things for them and capitalize on some of, the, uh, some of the good fights they've made and some of the great performances they've had in recent years. Sticking with HBO, though, HBO is going to be doing more and more business with Eddie Hearn. There, there seems to be. Eddie Hearn was there. I was at the Linares Campbell fight at, at, in uh, Inglewood in at the forum Saturday. and I'll talk more about that later. But Eddie Hearn was walking all over. He was busy. Of course, you know, Luke Campbell was there. I get it. But it was more than that. He was talking to some of the HBO brass. Peter Nelson at HBO was walking around the bowels of the arena too, and those two were talking a lot. No doubt they had meetings this week. There's some wheelings wheelings and dealings going on there. Dimitri Bevel is fighting for a vacant WBA light heavyweight title against a no-name Australian fighter, Trent Broadhurst. Look, Trent Broadhurst, I say no name not to disrespect him. Some of you out there say, what about Jeff Horn?" This guy is not even Jeff Horn, okay? But more about that in a second. That fight, I believe, is actually a matchroom promoted event. Don't quote me on that. But uh, HBO is going to pick up the rights to that, I think, and and broadcast that fight. So I think we're going to see Dimitri Bivol move over. And I think that there's a matchroom card in October that HBO is going to feature as well. So they're starting to buy into the Eddie Hearn business. Look, top rank left and took their thing to, uh, to ESPN, right? A lot of Golden Boys, well Golden Boy has one star, one mega star, that's Canelo Alvarez, and he fights strictly twice a year on pay-per-view. So there's only so many guys that uh, HBO has. The same thing with Golovkin now, he's a twice a year pay-per-view fighter from here on out. So there's only so many guys that HBO can put on their network and build up right now. So it's smart to start doing more business with Eddie Hearn, and we're going to start seeing more Matchroom cards featured on HBO, even if they're overseas and they're featured, uh, you know, same time, like in the afternoon here, then a tape-delay broadcast later on at night. But back to this b Broadhurst fight. So look, Broadhurst is 20-1, and, and he's fought absolutely nobodies. And again, I'm not trying to put anybody down. I'm just saying in relative terms here, is you know, at looking at the elite level, and then there's the contender level. Nobody even touches that. Nobody even touches blue chip prospect that he's fought or former name. Nobody. In fact, Broadhurst, I think, has only had one 12-rounder scheduled and I think two 10-rounders scheduled in his whole career. So he is completely undeserving of a title. Yet the WBA ranks him number 11, I believe, right now, unless their new ratings are coming out and he's suddenly going to be bumped up in the top 10. We'll see. Bivol, by the way, 11-0, you guys know I'm pretty high on him. He's a Russian fighter, Um, knockout artist, comes forward and just straight drills dudes, right? But we haven't seen him in there against anybody that can punch back. And Trent Broadhurst won't punch back. So these two are going to fight November 4th. And this is basically a way to get Bivol a, a portion of the WBA light heavyweight title, which I like, fine. But I'm still calling him a prospect after this. He's going to be another guy with a title that I call a prospect. Light heavyweight, however, is about to blow up because Andre Ward has announced his retirement. And, you know, a few of you have asked me, do you think, do I think he's going to stay retired or not? I want to say yes, but I don't know. It's hard to say when a boxer retires. It's always hard to say. I just try to think, A year, two years down the road, you know, some of these light heavyweights coming up, these young guns that look real strong, beat each other up a little bit, wear each other down a little bit. Maybe one of them rises to the top with a couple titles. Maybe there's a money fight there for Ward, but does he want any of that work? I don't think any of these guys are going to beat each other up quite enough to make it uh, risk versus reward anything he'd want to jump at because that just hasn't been his MO to take big risks, right? So I think he's probably going to stay retired unless there's some sort of one-off fight against the cruiserweight champion and they're willing to go to Oakland or maybe Las Vegas or something like that. Some one-off fight where Rock Nation will pony up $8 million, $10 million, something like that. I don't think that happens. I think Andre Ward is probably done, but in boxing, you never say never. So... All the titles he had are about to go up for grabs, and there's a lot of guys right now in the light heavyweight division that there's a lot of good-looking prospects coming up, and then there's guys who are contenders who are ready right now. You got your Oleksandr Gavostics, you got your uh, Sullivan Barreras, those kind of guys who are a cut or two above Dimitri Bivol as I see it right now because, like I said, he's still a prospect. I don't care that he's about to have a title. And then you got guys like, look, Sergey Kovalev is about to fight Vashaslav Szebranski. You have to favor Kovalev in that fight. If he wins and wins big, he's a player again. He's going to be going for a title. Maybe he can have a kind of second uh, second wind in his career, but he's going to have to make some major changes in his camp to, to have that. If Szebranski pulls that upset, he's a big-time player, and he's so vulnerable if he ends up grabbing the title or something, everyone's going to be jumping at him to, for that. So it's going to get fun in the light heavyweight division. It's, it's going to get fun. And most of these guys don't really have um, some sort of political alignment to Showtime that I can think of off the top of my head. There is Adonis Stevenson, but as far as I'm concerned, he's a non-factor because he doesn't want to fight anybody. All the other guys that we actually care about, that actually want to fight, either free agents or they, they're available on HBO or they're already fighting on HBO. So I think we're gonna get some fun matchups in the light heavyweight division over the next year or so. But sticking with Andre Ward, hey and guys, let me know if you want me to do a video detailing the career of Andre Ward and what I really, really think. And I, and I get a lot of flack because I've been highly critical of Andre Ward and I'm not the only one. I would say the majority of the boxing press Is critical of him and it's the the criticism is well-earned but taking that aside for a minute and looking at the man's career okay Olympic gold medalist in 2004 goes pro at the very end of 2004 retires toward the end of 2017 so what is that a 13 14 year pro career he had 32 fights some of you might think that's good because he didn't fight too much and preserved himself Others will think that's bad. 32 pro fights in a career that was, you know, that spanned um, almost a decade and a half. Um, To me, that's not enough. That's really not enough. But 32-0, 16 knockouts. And he was legitimately, at one point, the super middleweight champion of the world. I'm not talking about Titleist or anything like that. When Andre Ward and Carl Froch fought in 2011... I believe that was actually a title unification fight and I think a number one versus number two matchup, or at least number one versus number three. So that established a new lineage. That established a lineal, legitimate, super middleweight champion, and it also closed out the Super 6 tournament. So at that point, Andre Ward was the legitimate super middleweight champion. He did not fight Lucien Butte, and that's a fight he should have took. He should have traveled to Montreal and done it. Even if it was short money, he should have done it because it would have put him in esteemed company having all the titles. But either way, legitimate super middleweight champion. And then at the tail end of his career, whether you agree with the decision last November or not, and 75% of you don't, this this year in the rematch against Sergey Kovalev, Andre Ward won. And I, I know that there's some controversy and it was a little ugly, but he won. He won pretty decisively. So he was legitimately the light heavyweight champion of the world. And yes, there's still another titleist out there named Adonis Stevenson. But unlike the Lucien Bute situation, uh, I don't think Adonis Stevenson wants any part of Andre Ward. Okay, um, But it would have been nice for him to try to make that fight. And he, it, either way, let's back up. Olympic gold medalist, retires undefeated officially, whether you agree he should have been or not. Officially retires undefeated was officially the super middleweight and light heavyweight champion of the world. Those are nice, those are outstanding credentials. And that's going to put him down on the Hall of Fame ballot in 2022. And if you're an Andre Ward fan, you don't mind that he only had 32 fights in 13, 14 years as a professional. You don't mind that. You don't mind that he was largely inactive and almost a non-factor between... Uh, 2012 and 2015, pretty much a non-factor in the sport, and actually lost his lineal championship was was uh, stripped of it by Ring Magazine because he didn't fight anybody that was ranked for so long. You also don't mind that look, this is a legitimate fact, guys. He was the super middleweight champion, but he only defended his unified linear championship twice, uh, once against. Chad Dawson, whom he drained in weight and made come to his hometown in Oakland, and once against Edwin Rodriguez, who at the time I believe was rated in the top 10. It was seen as a potential contender that could be something, but we have since seen he's not a very good fighter. And then inactivity um, for various reasons, and then he kind of moved to this catchweight area, and then eventually goes to light heavyweight. So only two defenses of that lineal super middleweight championship then officially becomes the light heavyweight champion last November, defends it once against Sergei Kovalev, and retires. So he wasn't even the legitimate light heavyweight champion for a year. Not even a full year as light heavyweight champion. And if you, like a lot of people, feel he lost that first fight, then he won the rematch here, okay. He was only the light heavyweight champion for a few months. So... As many nice shiny pearly things that there are on his resume there's a lot of holes in them right it's it's almost on the surface it looks very thick but you turn it sideways and there's some thin areas you know i hate to you know use use the magazine as a symbol here but and you, look for the record we could do this with every single fighter we really can do it with every single fighter but some of you you know, think that uh, I hate the guy and I just don't like him, and, and that's simply not true. There's just certain things about Andre Ward outside the ring that uh, rub me and many other people the wrong way, and a lot of you have never had to deal with the guy are never going to quite understand it. In the ring, not the most exciting guy, but he had a tenacity about him and a, a, a meanness in the way he fought almost and was willing to do whatever it took to win round by round in his career. He's a guy that did it his way. He always had it his way. So there's two elements of that. There's two sides. Yes, he did it his way. And again, if you're an Andre Ward fan, you like that. You celebrate that. You're like, yeah, he didn't want to be under that contract anymore. He should have just sat on his butt and tried to sue his way out of the contract, even though he was rejected multiple times. Um, You don't mind that he... Paid the fam- Dan Goosen's family a settlement through Rock Nation's deal to buy himself out of that uh, contract with Goosen. And the only reason he ever fought again is because Dan Goosen died. You don't mind any of that because you see a man doing what he wanted to do for himself and his family. The flip side of that is, you know, he always had it his way. And that's okay. That, that you know, it, it's not. A horrible thing but he never once fought a ranked high-level fighter in an important high-level fight outside of America while he was a prospect building himself up he had a couple of fights I want to say like in the Caribbean or something but never never went to Montreal it's interesting because at again at super middleweight you had Lucien Bute over there in Montreal would have been a massive money fight for Ward would have been in front of a crowd of at least 20,000. Arguably could have been pay-per-view, but even if it wasn't, um, it would have been substantial for him money-wise, and it would have propelled him to another place. It also would have built him up in a different market, a very healthy market. Montreal is a much healthier boxing market than Oakland or the Bay Area in California. And he didn't do it. And what's interesting is ultimately Carl Frotch, who he decisively defeated in at that time his most uh, defining career win, Carl Frotch was able to lure Lucien Bute over to the UK where he fought him and he took the O. And Frotch got all the benefits of that because he knocked him out. And for the record, I think Ward could have maybe knocked Butte out. But Frotch did it so emphatically in front of all his hometown fans that his next couple fights were massive, massive events in front of tens of thousands of people that did big ratings and he got huge paydays. I mean, Carl Froch's last fight, he got an eight-figure payday. It's just kind of ironic the way that worked out. And at this point in time, with the current light heavyweight situation, and look, I understand that politically, with Adonis Stevenson, it would be very hard to make a fight. But Adonis Stevenson puts butts in seats in Montreal. It's kind of ironic that it was two Canadian fighters. But again, if Andre were willing to, uh, go through camp one more time and go to Montreal and fight it down to Stevenson and beat him there and get that, you know, that last chunk of the light heavyweight championship. Um, I, I think it could do wonders for him, but at this point he doesn't really need it. And you know, if he wants to walk away at this point, look, that hall of fame class of 2022 is going to be stacked. You're going to have Vladimir Klitschko, Juan Manuel Marquez, Andre Ward if he stays retired, um, Shane Mosley who officially retired this year. You're going to get uh, Miguel Cotto. You're going to get, who am I forgetting? I know I'm forgetting somebody. Um, it's It's loaded, right? So five years from now, who gets in on the first ballot? Because I believe only three can get voted in. It's going to get political because there's a lot going on. But The people that vote for the International Boxing Hall of Fame, a lot of them are part of the Boxing Writers Association of America, and Andre Ward is a lock. He absolutely, five years from now, will get voted in first ballot, whether he deserves it or not. And we can argue about that and talk about it at that time, but mark my words, he is a lock in 2022. Uh, Even though, when you look at who is more beloved in their home country, out of that class, it's probably... Juan Manuel Marquez, right? You can make an argument for Klitschko over in Germany, probably a few countries for Klitschko. Uh, When you look at who is the biggest pay-per-view star of that class, it's probably Shane Mosley, but you can make an argument for Juan Manuel Marquez. It's one of those two. When you look at who is the biggest star globally, who, who put the most butts in seats, who actually sold the most tickets globally, it's Vladimir Klitschko. Because this guy was doing fights, you know, 50,000, 60,000 fans in seats. And he was a star in several countries. So, uh, I, and he did it. That's another thing, too. If you're going to argue who, you know, who was more dominant and reigned longer, who had longer, longer reigns as champion, it's not Ward. It's Klitschko, right? Um, some of these other guys had short little reigns and, and back and forth and, and great rivalries. Marquez had the rivalry with Pacquiao. Mosley had the rivalry with De La Hoya. So these guys all had these rivalries and, and in some way or another endeared themselves to fans and did a lot of business. Ward didn't really do any of that. And in 2012, when Floyd Mayweather left HBO and went over to Showtime, the former brass at Showtime, some of them moved to HBO and they brought Andre Ward with them and threw out a boatload of money and basically wanted to make him the, the new star there at HBO, the new American star, the face of boxing. And they tried, but you got to have a willing participant. And Andre Ward simply wouldn't play ball. He was going to do it his way. He spent most of his prime years fighting with Goosen, trying to get out of a contract that was totally lock solid. He was rejected by multiple authorities, multiple jurisdictions, trying to get out of it. And he kept trying to fight it. So there's, like any career, there's some good and there's some bad. But depending on who you're talking to, there's some people that will act like Andre Ward is the second coming of the Messiah. He is the son of God. And they don't understand the criticism. They just can't understand why guys like me and really the majority of media who bring some of these things up Uh, They don't understand why we say it and why we're being critical. It's not that Andre Ward wasn't a very good fighter. He was very good. He wasn't an all-time great, though. He was elite. He was one of the best fighters of his generation. But guys, he has two career-defining wins, Karl Froch, Sergey Kovalev. Neither one of them are Hall of Fame fighters. And you can say the same thing for Vladimir Klitschko, right? Who He didn't have the the fortune of being able to fight anybody that was a Hall of Fame fighter. They didn't exist in his division. The difference with Klitschko and someone like Ward is Klitschko owned a division for a decade. He fought a couple times a year. He unified his titles. He fought everybody consistently. Style wise, him and Ward were very similar. Ward did a lot of stuff that made his fights very ugly. So did Vladimir Klitschko. But Klitschko had more than twice the amount of fights Andre Ward had. He also had a gold medal. He had a much better amateur career than Ward did, and in some ways you can argue a much better professional career than Ward did. But I can tell you right now, in five years, there are a lot of writers at the Boxing Writer Association of America that will vote for Andre Ward and not vote for Klitschko, because a lot of them are still a little prejudiced about fighters from uh, Eastern Europe. They just are. So if I had to put my money on who's going to get in in 2022 first ballot, I'm going to guess with my wallet, Andre Ward, Juan Manuel Marquez, Shane Mosley, even though Shane Mosley tied to performance-enhancing drugs, Juan Manuel Marquez, suspicions, but absolutely no proof. And Andre Ward between Frotch and Kovalev was five years of nothing. Five years of nothing that rates pound for pound. So, guys, these things are always complex, but that's the way I see it. If you want me to do a more detailed video on Ward, I just spent several minutes talking about him here. Let me know. Other than that, that's it with news and notes. Let's review what happened last week. Last Tuesday, the 19th, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, it was another PBC on Fox Sports 1 card. And in the headliner, 140-pound, prospect slash contender, I'd probably still call him a prospect, Mario Barrios improved to 20-0 with a TKO7 win over Naeem Nelson. Now on Friday, it was another top rank on ESPN card, but it wasn't just ESPN. It was uh, ESPN News, then it was ESPN2, then it was ESPN. So far, these top rank on ESPN cards have been a mess. Just an absolute mess with the scheduling. This was a nice card on paper from Tucson, Arizona, and it actually delivered. All the fights were good, and the two headlining fights were very competitive. On paper, a lot of people thought that these were just gimme matchups. Turns out, they were highly competitive fights, and you know you've seen good fights when you look at the quote-unquote opponent, and you're like, I wanna see that dude again. And that that's what we got, but, This card started on ESPN News, right? I I think there was a Major League Baseball game on ESPN, and right before this card was gonna start, I remember turning on ESPN, and it was like in the sixth inning. I'm like, oh my God, they're not even close. And then I think there was a college football game on ESPN too, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I believe that's what it was. Some obscure school in the middle of nowhere, it, it, it didn't matter. Then on ESPN News, they cut that broadcast, whatever they, were, whatever they were doing there, to show the fights. And then after, I think it was after the Michael Conlon fight, which was the first televised fight, they ended up switching to ESPN2. And I think that's where they did the Gilberto Ramirez fight. And then before the main event, I think they finally switched to ESPN. Without warning, they just switched over. All that being said, the main event didn't even start till after midnight on the East Coast. So again, you have a main event that doesn't even start till midnight. You have not two, but three different channels. Yeah, it's all the same channel, you can say, but three different platforms of the channel. Or maybe it's three different channels of the platform. Maybe I have it backwards. Either way, there's absolutely no cohesion to this thing. And one of my biggest arguments with PBC, or one of my biggest gripes or criticisms of it, was that there was no network cohesion because one fight would be on CBS, then randomly another one's on NBC, and then there's one on Fox, and then there's one on Showtime, and it's it's not PBC, but it is PBC. All this stuff, right? You know these top-ranked cards are ESPN, cool. But is it ESPN News, ESPN2, or ESPN? Is it ESPN3, their online streaming service? What the heck is it? It's all over the place. So that is a major issue that they need to work out. And they need to do it ASAP because the ratings can't build when you're forcing people to go looking for it. Diehard boxing fans, they'll walk through the desert. They'll drive three hours. They'll, they'll, do it. they'll go without food and water for a week to watch boxing. Those are diehard fight freaks. They will fi- if there's a fight out there, they will find it. But if we're trying to build with casual fans and build fans to the sport, you got to do a better job, guys. And I don't know what, it's something about top ranks deal with Disney where the college football broadcast or the major league baseball broadcast, whatever it is, that gets precedent over the boxing broadcast. Now, I don't know if it has something to do with the deals already being structured with those entities, because if you think about it. They signed their major league baseball contract years ago. And it's the same thing with college football. They re-upped on that years ago. So those contracts are already built in. And maybe that's why those broadcasts get precedent. So the boxing is the new kid on the block, and the boxing seems to get bumped for all these other sports. I just, you know, instead of scheduling it on ESPN, just schedule it on ESPN too. Just schedule it on ESPN new straight away so that people know where to go and it stays there. All right, on to the actual fights. Uh, Michael Conlan and Igodijas Kavaliowskis both scored knockout wins. Um, can we get Kavaliowskis the mean machine, on television, though? I understand that Michael Conlan is marketable because he speaks English. He was an Olympian. He flicked off the judges and... He's, he's Irish, and there's a fan base there, particularly in America. Irish-Americans love to go to fights, and Irish Irish people love to go to fights. But I understand that. I get it. Can we get the mean machine on TV? He's, he's entertaining. He's, he is living and training out here in Cali. He's learning English. Get this guy on TV. How hard would it be to get this guy on television, especially when there's 8,000 different ESPN platforms to feature him on? Let's just get him featured on a card and get him in front of fans' faces. In the co main, Gilberto Ramirez improves to 36 0 with the unanimous decision win over Jesse Hart, whom he knocked down in the second round. Scores were 115 112 twice and 114 113. So essentially, these judges, two of them had it 7 5, and one judge had it a draw. Those are pretty damn good scorecards because this was a very close fight. Let's talk about Jesse Hart for a second. You know, I thought he won the first round, started well, but then he got popped in the second round, and he looked bad. He got caught with a shot he didn't see. It was a temple shot, equilibrium shot. At first, I looked at the punch, and I'm like, there's just nothing behind this punch. But again, it was high in the head, just his equilibrium looked messed up. I didn't know if he'd survive at that point. It looked really wobbly. But he fought back hard, and he showed a lot of heart. He won several rounds. He actually landed some hard shots on Ramirez. But fundamentally, the way the guy punched was so poor in spots. I don't know if it was by design or not, but I noticed when he jabbed, he'd jerk his right hand back. So if he's here, right, he's, he's out here, he's got his right hand here, and he's going to jab, he'd go like this. It's like he's doing a bow and arrow. That's exactly how it looked. And it it just made him wide open for hooks. It also made it impossible to to do a one-two because if you're going from back here, it's so slow it can be timed and you're losing all your velocity. You're supposed to boom, boom, and put your, you know, this hand's supposed to be here to catch the jab, right? But after you shoot this shot, you shoot it straight from here. You just turn your shoulders over and put your shoulders into it. That's like basic fundamentals. So there was that, and then there was this uppercut where he was winding down and throwing it from his hip. You know, and look, sometimes when you get really, really tired, I get it, your form kind of slips. I do that stuff all the time when I'm just working out, hitting mitts and stuff. I'll see my form go to hell, right? But like he was doing this early on. It's just how he throws punches. And I'm like, man, what are they teaching in these Philly gyms? What are they teaching on the East Coast right now? The gyms on the East Coast just... The trainers, what's going on, man? Because these guys here in the gyms in in Los Angeles, and even these gyms in Texas, in the Dallas and Houston area, uh, the fundamentals are just so much tighter from what I see. When I just go in there and see guys work out, and then when I see their prospects fight on TV, I just see such better fundamentals than the guys coming out of New York and coming out of Philly and Detroit, my hometown right now. I just, I'm not seeing the fundamentals in these gyms. So, anyway, beyond that, you know, if Hart kept his hand here and threw a shot right there, he could have maybe hurt uh, Ramirez, but it wasn't to be. He did just enough, I felt, to closely lose this fight. For Ramirez, who has been very dull to watch recently in his recent fights. He was more exciting in this fight. Part of that was his dance partner. He had the guy in front of him making it exciting, but so did he. He buried, you know, he got down the trenches, he dug in, and he, he ate some shots in this fight. He probably took more punches in this fight than any other fight I've seen him in that', that I've, at least recently, right? Um, so he was exciting and everything, but I, I just don't see elite level fighter when I look at Gilberto Ramirez yet. He's got so many tools. He's tall. Uh, he, he punches he, with pretty good leverage and moves pretty well for his height. He does have a nice jab. He can throw in combination. He can go to the body for a tall guy. He can do a lot of things well. He seems to have a good chin, but there just isn't that extra dimension, at least not yet. Maybe someone's got to pull it out of him, but I would have liked to have seen him because he had some, some there were some middle rounds here where he was really, really forced to fight and work for it. And he, he was getting tagged a little bit. I would have liked to have seen him show that extra level in the late rounds of this fight and pull out a stoppage. And it looked like he was on the cusp of it a couple times. It just didn't happen. He just doesn't have that eraser. So super middleweight is kind of a weak division right now and it's wide open. So I, I think that there's money to be made for him. I think he'll be okay for a while, but how would a fighter like James DeGale fare against Gilberto Ramirez? You know, James DeGale can be a little chinny. I think Ramirez can hurt him, but man, DeGale might be able to just box circles around the guy. I I don't know. I'm just still not 100% sold on Gilberto Ramirez. Just not there yet. Um, As far as I'm concerned, you know, he's got 36 pro fights, he's got a title. He's definitely past prospect status now. He's a legitimate bona fide contender. He has a title. But I just don't know if he's elite yet. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Main event, a lot of the same thing, man. A lot of the same things I'm going to say with Ramirez. Got to say it about Oscar Valdez. He improves to 23-0 with a unanimous decision win over Genesis Savania. Much more decisive win. Uh, He wins by the scores of 117-109. 116, 110, I think those scores were a bit too wide. In 115, 111, I think that was the right score. Valdez was dropped in the fourth. Servania dropped in the fifth. Servania was in amazing shape because that knockdown in the fifth was bad. For Servania to not only survive that, but have some moments in the middle and late rounds of this fight was pretty impressive. Valdez does everything at one speed, everything. It doesn't matter if he's shooting a jab, the right hand, hooks, uppercuts, whatever it is, it's all one speed and he's trying to punch hard. He puts everything into it. And he, he started barking in this fight with a lot of shots. You know, ha, 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 you know, doing that kind of stuff. And Servania was actually able to catch him slipping away lazy, in a lazy way and nail him with, I think it was a right hand, and put him down. And there were several spots in the fight where he was able to counter Valdez, block shots, make a miss, and counter and actually stun him a little bit. And this isn't the first time Valdez has been down in a fight. I was ringside when I saw Ruben Tamayo drop him, I think in the first, maybe second round in their fight a couple years ago. Um, He always responds well to getting knocked down. He responds well to being hit. He is a natural bred fighter. When he gets hit, when he gets hurt, He comes back. Comes back hard with a meanness, a tenacity to him. He likes fighting. But this kind of style, it's not going to work at the elite level. He is a sitting duck. They're talking about possibly him fighting uh, Carl Frampton at some point next year. Uh, I think that that would not go well for him. It's possible that he could hurt Frampton He's a lot bigger and taller and stronger than Frampton. But with Frampton's size and quickness, he is levels above Genesis Cervania and really anybody Oscar Valdez has fought. Even a guy like Leo Santa Cruz, who doesn't punch hard at all, but showed he does have a good jab and actually can box a little in that rematch against Frampton. I think Santa Cruz chops him up. Doesn't stop him, but he wins a clear decision. He's going to take some shots. But there's just, there's no change up there's no uh, change in the speeds and the velocity of the punches and not just that with the feints with the angles everything is one speed every movement every pivot every step to the side every shift same speed everything everything he does and that's how Cervania was able to catch him sliding away because he did there's just no you got to have difference in speeds you can't come in the same way every time And there's just a lot to work on. If I'm top rank, and these are two of the guys that I want to build up to become possible future draws, and Gilberto Ramirez uh, has learned English and did the post-fight interview in English, so props to him, and that tells you that they're trying, they're thinking long term with this, right? Top rank knows what they're doing. They know how to build up prospects, and no doubt someone has gotten him in his ear and said, look, learn this English and keep it going. If they want to build these two guys up, they need to pump the brakes. They need to pump the brakes, man. My thing is, I don't mind if these guys lose a fight or two, if it makes them better fighters. But some promoters are weary of that. Personally, I'd love to see Oscar Valdez versus uh, Carl Frampton. I'd love to see Gilberto, Ram- Gilberto Ramirez versus James DeGale or somebody like that, or David Benavides if that could be done. I'd love to see those matchups. I don't care if these guys lose fights. But you know promoters do. So I expect them to start pulling back a little bit and working on some things with these fighters. Okay, Saturday, a lot happened. In Manchester, Joseph Parker improved 24-0 with unanimous decision win over Huey Fury to defend his WBO heavyweight title. Scores were 118-110 twice, 114-114. So actually, I said unanimous decision. That's incorrect. It's majority decision. Look, all three of those scores were bad, bad, all three of them. This wasn't a draw. Joseph Parker won the fight. But the 118, 110 scores were way too wide. This was probably a 116, 112, 115, 113 type of fight. The judge who added the draw, that was also a poor card. There's no way that Fury, Huey Fury, did enough to draw with Joseph Parker. I watched this fight, unfortunately. I watched... uh, as much of it as I could tolerate. There were a few rounds where two minutes in, I just (laughs) But I watched the majority of the fight and clearly Joseph Parker did more. But it's exactly what I told you guys would happen. Horrible fight, sloppy, flailing, horrible punches. But Parker was doing the more consistent work throughout. Fury did little more than hold in this fight. He threw some punches here and there. It was a lot of one punch at a time. Yes, he landed some. Anyone can land a punch on Joseph Parker, but Parker was the guy consistently working. Fury Fury was coming off, what, a year and a half layoff and everything else. Um, He just didn't show me enough in this fight, guys. Now, his promoter, Mick Hennessy, went on this big diatribe about how these scores are horrible and there should be a rematch and this is corruption. Um, Guys, he is full of BS. That's not the case here. You guys know I keep it real about scorecards, and I have no problem going on the record and putting my butt on the line going on the record, reaming someone out when they need it. I don't like these scores. The real score was in the middle of these three scores, but the right guy won. Do I, do I think these judges should be talked to? Do I think that there should be some sort of um, meeting with them where they sit down and learn how to score a fight round by round? Sure. The commission over there should work with these judges. Fine. But the right guy won. Huey Fury did not win this fight. So some of you on Twitter were saying this was a robbery, this, that, and the other. I completely disagree. That's not what I saw. Parker wins, but he is by far the weakest of the three heavyweight titleists right now. Uh, He'd have a shot against somebody like Wilder or even Joshua because maybe he could land a hard punch. The thing is, he'd be punching up and both of those guys, they're much bigger than him. And Parker has fought some tall guys. He just fought Fury, who's tall. Uh, he fought Kojinu, I think, earlier this year, who's a tall guy. And then he fought uh, Alexander Dimitrenko. So he's fought some tall guys, but nowhere near the same class as Deontay Wilder or, or Anthony Joshua. So, so, you know, Parker's just not ready for those guys. Just not ready. They need to continue to uh, build him up and put him in there against some other top rated fighters. I would be curious to see what he could do against one of the other top 10 rated heavyweights, right? You look at the very, very top of the heavyweight division, there's some good fighters, top five. But then that six through 10, really the guys are interchangeable. Let's see him fight somebody in that range and see how he does. Maybe one of these veterans, you know, Maybe if Alexander Povetkin stays clean and works his way into a mandatory situation or something, I'd be curious to see how Joseph Parker would look against Alexander Povetkin if they fought in New Zealand with full vada testing. It'd be interesting to see something like that. But San Antonio, it was the World Boxing Super Series, uh, Cruiserweight Tournament, Unier Dorticos improves to 22-0 with 21 knockouts, Second round, crushing knockout of Dmitry Kudryashov, who takes, I I believe, his second pro loss. And Orticos defends his WBA title. This was streamed live on the World Boxing Super Series website. Guys, if you live in the States and you want to watch one of these fights, you're not going to be able to. They're not on any American TV channel right now. But no matter where you live in the world, if you have the internet, Go to the World Boxing Super Series website. They're streaming all these fights. At least so far in the quarterfinals, they're streaming them. So what was cool is I was ringside for Linares Campbell. And I was, as I was watching undercard fights, I was watching this uh, World Boxing Super Series fight. So that was pretty cool that I was able to keep up with both events at the same time. So uh, look, I told you guys Kudryoshov was nothing, right? Now, I was, even I was surprised at the second round knockout. I really didn't think that it would be that quick. And really all it was is Kudryashov is really slow, really slow, painfully slow. And I think he missed a shot and he tried to shift and Dortikos threw a right hand that was pretty telegraphed. It wasn't a blazing fast right hand, but instead of cocking it straight, he looped it over the top. It kind of went over Kudryashov's shoulder and he didn't have his chin tucked into his shoulder. And it even hit him high on the head. It didn't even hit him on the chin. But it was enough to just put him down. And when Kudryashov went down, you saw his eyes. He kind of had a Curtis Stevens moment, but even worse. Uh, Remember Curtis Stevens when he got dropped by Golovkin? His eyes and face kind of looked the same expression, but he was in bad, bad shape. So uh, the ref just stopped it right there, and that was the end of it. Uh, For Kudryashov, all his fights were in Russia. He had built up this resume. I think every one of his wins was by knockout, but he knocked out a bunch of stiffs. And again, I'm not trying to disrespect anybody, but this is the reality. His claim to fame was a first-round knockout of a 41-year-old Juan Carlos Gomez. Remember him? That's the guy who fought, tried heavyweight for a few years, weighed 230 pounds in a TKO 9 loss to Vitali Klitschko in 2009. Sadly enough, that's one of Vitali Klitschko's best wins. That that tells you how poor Vitaly's opposition was there for a while in that division. But um, yeah, Juan Carlos Gomez, 41, 42 years old. That was the only name on Kudryashov's resume. So looked great on paper, crushing. He looks the part. He looks scary. He's got a beard, this and that. But skills pay the bills, guys. And I I told you, I, I thought Dorticos would box his ass off and possibly stop him late. Didn't see this coming, but now uh, Dortico's put the whole tournament on blast. However, shouldn't get too excited. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Look who we just beat, okay? I, I think that um, Oleksandr Usyk beat a much better fighter in his fight. Uh, Gassiev is going up against a much better fighter in his upcoming fight. So let's not all of a sudden jump on the Dortico's bandwagon and think he's the favorite in this tournament. He's still not. i still got Usyk number one. Uh, Gossie of number two, and I like uh, Dorticos is my number three right now. But definitely someone to keep an eye on, right? Definitely someone to keep an eye on. Appears that he might have the eraser because 21 knockouts and 22 fights, and he has an amateur background uh, pedigree to him. Okay, Nonito Donaire also wins a featherweight fight on the undercard there. And lastly, in Inglewood, inside the forum, the Linares-Campbell card, and um, Antonio Rosco is supposed to fight in the co-main, didn't make weight, didn't even try to make it again. They were trying to work with him to do some sort of catch weight or something like that. He didn't want to do that. He just flat out refused to work with anybody. I don't understand what the hell he's doing, but he's a complete non-factor. I don't care if I ever see him again. This isn't the first time he's pulled this stunt. Guys, we've got on Adrian Broner before. We've got on uh, Gervonta Davis and other fighters for missing weight. For this dude to miss weight and not even be willing to try to meet at a catch weight somewhere, he literally screwed himself out of fighting on HBO. An opening broadcast on HBO for the Canelo Golovkin replay. What a moron. Yeah, riddance, good riddance, Antonio Orozco, okay? But main event, Jorge Linares wins a split decision over Luke Campbell, knocks him down in the second round, cuts his right eye off that punch really, really pretty knockdown from Lenaris. Wasn't the hardest punch in the world, but he was perfectly thrown at the perfect time with the perfect leverage. Campbell was a little off balance. Boom, dropped him. Campbell said that he had double vision in that eye from that point forward. Uh, Linares improves to 43-3 and three with 27 knockouts. The scores were 115-112, 114-113. Two very good scores. And Victor Laughlin, a Scottish judge, somehow scored this fight 115-113 for Luke Campbell. A disgusting score. Absolutely atrocious. Um, Basically, remember, there's a knockdown here. So he would have to give Campbell eight rounds and I think score one round even somewhere to come up with that score. That is just not what took place in the ring. Okay. For Luke Campbell, this is his second split decision loss. Both of his losses, he was dropped. He did a lot of good things in there against Linares. Some people on Twitter were saying, oh, Linares fought down to the level of his opposition. That's BS. Campbell made him fight and did some good things in there. And I saw him nail Linares and and bother him. I was right there by the ring and I could visibly see the body language. Campbell was bothering this man. The problem with Campbell, uh, a little too straight up and down, a little too stiff, doesn't move his head very much, doesn't throw in combination, and he slaps with his punches. He's an amateurish puncher still. He doesn't sit down on his punches, doesn't throw combinations. He could land an occasional, he was landing right hooks. Guys, watch my ringside recap for details of how the fight went. He did some good things in there, just not enough, not consistent with his combination punching, and he'll be able to win a lightweight title at some point, I really think he will. But he's just never going to be at that elite level. He's just not. Now for Linares. You know, a lot of people have Linares fever right now. They, they, he's a pretty fighter to watch. He's probably the best, most fluid combination puncher as far as staying on balance and throwing perfectly fundamentally sound combination punches in all of boxing. Yes, he is. But let's look at this resume right, since his two knockout losses, the most recent knockout losses in 2011 and 2012, look at his level of opposition. And I talked about this a little bit in my ringside recap. He has been willing to stamp his passport. He has fought in Mexico, America, the UK, and Japan. And he's had some mandatory, uh, I think some mandatory fighters he's had to face. He does have a title, all that, good. But hasn't fought an elite level fighter. And I'm looking at this guy's resume, he's becoming known for his offensive brilliance and all that, and he should be, but he needs to fight somebody elite to warrant some of the praise he's getting. And there's a guy in his division named Mikey Garcia, who they called out to his credit after the fight. They, want, they said they want to fight Mikey Garcia, they said they'll fight him at 135, they'll even move to 140 pounds to fight him. I don't know if Mikey Garcia wants to take that fight. I think Mikey Garcia is fighting strictly for the money and just going through the motions right now to try. He's just planning his retirement. That's just what I see in him right now. Hopefully, I'll be proven wrong. But for Linares, who does the guy fight then? If it's not Mikey Garcia, what top-rated lightweights would you guys like to see him fight? Um, I would like to see this guy. He's not going to fight any of the PBC guys unless one of them works their way up into a mandatory position, because Golden Boy and Al Heyman do not get along, so that's not gonna happen. I just don't see a lot of fights for this guy to really prove once and for all who really is the best lightweight. The only guy is Mikey Garcia, and I understand he's a PBC guy, but there's actual money in that fight, and I think they could justify doing a pay-per-view. It wouldn't sell much, but they could do a pay-per-view. It might do 200,000 buys, That'd be plenty to pay those two guys what they're worth. Um, Or if they did it early next year, the networks could shell out a bunch of money. They could do um, maybe a a split HBO Showtime thing or something. I don't know. But that's the only big money fight I see in that division, man. So I just don't know where Jorge Linares goes from here. But I guess for now, line him up, knock him down. That's what he's going to keep on doing. So that's it with the review, guys. Um, Let's get into the preview of what's coming up this week. Tuesday, September 26th, my mom's birthday. It's another PBC on Fox Sports One card. This one's from the Cannery Casino and Hotel in Las Vegas. Guys, I've never heard of that venue. Is that a new venue? If any of you Las Vegas guys know, let me know, because I've just never heard of it. The uh, The main event is a featherweight 10 rounder between Cuban Laduan Bartholome and Mexican Eduardo Ramirez. From what I've seen of both of their styles and their knockout ratios, expect that one to go the distance. And uh, the only big card Saturday is in Riga, Latvia, another World Boxing Super Series cruiserweight fight. Marius Bredis going up against Mike Perez, the Cuban fighter who used to fight at heavyweight and has taken off about 30, 40 pounds of fat and is now fighting in a division he always should have been fighting in. So Bredis is 22-0 defending his WBC Cruiserweight title. Perez is 22-2-1. Uh, Bredis won the vacant title in April with a unanimous decision win over Marco Hook. Comparing these two fighters, um, Bredis went pro in 2009. He's 32 years old, six foot one. Perez, another one of these Cuban guys who had a long amateur career defected, went pro in 2008. He's 31 years old. He's about six feet tall. And this will be—he's—you know—Perez has only had one fight since that KO one loss to Alexander Povetkin in 2015. A very suspicious Alexander Povetkin in 2015. He weighed 240 pounds for that fight. And now, if you look at Perez, he's ripped, right? He had one fight, I think, in June against a nondescript opponent. It only went a portion of a round. I think it went like 30 seconds or something. But I think he weighed like 198 for that fight. So it's pretty amazing the body transformation he's made. That fight in June was essentially just to see if he can make the weight, but he really didn't get any rounds in. When you look at just rounds, the guy has fought one round since 2015. So on paper, as far as craft skills, experience, you favor Perez big time. But inactivity, after a few rounds, I think it's gonna to start to show. And Bredis is, is young, strong, doesn't have the wear and tear on him that Perez has. Perez has been in a couple fights where he took some shots. Remember that fight with Magomed Abdusalamov a few years back that ended in tragedy? That was a two-way you know, back and forth uh, heavyweight slugfest. And so Perez, on paper, can take any punch Bredis is going to throw out as long as cutting weight isn't killing him in the gym. Theoretically, he's taking big shots from big, strong heavyweights. He could take the punches, but is stamina going to be a factor? After two, three, four rounds, if this thing goes into the middle to late rounds, is he going to get tired and get worn out and just get knocked out? That's what you'd have to expect, what you'd think would happen, in this fight but sometimes skills pay the bills and maybe perez will look good at this weight maybe he'll look refreshed and rejuvenated and take care of business but on paper you got to favor the latvian fighter fighting in his homeland and you got to favor him big probably by stoppage that's probably what we're going to see here also uh this weekend on saturday tomas Adamek is fighting in poland that's kind of sad. He shouldn't be fighting anymore. Juan Manuel Lopez and Jason Velez fighting in Puerto Rico. That's a, a Puerto Rican grudge match. And considering everything that's been going on there and all the tragedy people have been dealing with there, uh, those folks could probably use a break. So nice that that fight's still happening. As far as I know, that fight's still scheduled. It's going forward. And um, that should be an exciting local fight there in Puerto Rico. And there's a match room card in Liverpool featuring just some... some uh, Uh, Eddie Hearn prospects. I think Rocky Fielding is defending his Commonwealth super middleweight title. But that's really it, guys. Not a lot going on this weekend. Schedule's slowing down a little bit for a couple weeks, and then it's going to heat back up. Guys, like always, thank you for the support. Like, comment, share, subscribe. You know the deal. I'll see you at the fights.